So welcome to another episode of This Is How We Do It, a podcast series from Women as One, where we explore practical solutions to achieving gender equity in medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Davide Capadano, who is an associate professor and interventional cardiologist at the University of Catania in Italy and the editor-in-chief of Euro Intervention. Welcome to the show, Davide. Thank you very much for having me. This episode is going to touch on the vast world of academic publishing, both from the editorial standpoint and from the standpoint of those submitting publications for review. And I want to start by talking about your role as editor-in-chief of Euro Intervention. You know, this podcast is obviously about gender and, and diversity, and I want to talk a little bit about diversity of thought. Is that sort of an aspect of your process? Um, is that important to your process in terms of expanding the editorial team out, sort of having different viewpoints and, and backgrounds and subspecialties, things of that nature? Yeah, there is no doubt that it is important. For me, the diversity of opinions on a topic is what really makes the topic interesting. And by the way, we have uh, editorial board meetings to discuss uh, every single paper after the review comments are uh, in the editorial office. And this means that each paper and uh, all the comments generate a discussion in which we really need uh, to uh, have a diversity of opinions. Otherwise, we will not take the right decision. So it's difficult to define the right formula sometimes of what uh, diversity means. You have to have this proportion of people, this proportion of backgrounds, uh, career stages, uh, gender, exactly. But there is no doubt from my perspective that uh, what we want in a journalist to have different perspectives and uh, see things also from uh, very complementary angles. I want to get into the numbers a little bit and talk about your team in particular. So one in five deputy editors of Euro Intervention are women and one in eight advisory editors. And this is consistent, I think, with the percentage of women in interventional cardiology at large, but it sort of strikes the eye, I guess, as being somewhat low. And I respect what you've just said about, you know, a meritocracy and sort of diversity sort of meaning multiple things. But just curious if there was ever a discussion or sort of a thought about diversity from the standpoint of in deliberately including more women on your team. Was that ever sort of, did that ever come up or was it just simply the, the pool of candidates that you had in front of you? Yeah, I must make a small correction uh, because there are two women out of five. Oh, there are. One, oh, uh, which, I've of course, yes, exactly. Mistaken. So Russia and uh, Nieves. But, well, of course, uh, I'm not really uh, obsessed by proportions, although I understand that uh, the ideal <laughs> scenario would be to have a 50 50 or something case, like that. Be. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> no, but I can say significant uh, uh, progress as compared with the past where there were only men. So this is uh, something we have done. But uh, I would be lying if I say that we actively wanted that. To be honest, uh, simply we looked for excellent people in those positions. And no surprise, there were also women uh, candidates for that. So I was really not in the position to say I want a woman if I have to select between a woman and a man. Simply I wanted excellent people. So for me, it could be really to have uh, five women in that position rather than uh, three men and two women. So we didn't have this kind of uh, background uh, thinking, but for sure there was no thinking of, uh, okay, I have to select only men or, or, or only women. So I think it was more uh, something about uh, what they can bring uh, to the table at the board, and we needed people with those characteristics. And when we profiled them, we discovered that there were two excellent women, and we uh, brought them in. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
if I'm going to be honest with you, like at face value, that makes a lot of sense, right? That's a very logical answer. It makes perfect sense. But there was a publication that came out in Cirque, I think, earlier this year, and it showed that over a 20-year period between 1998 and 2018, there was only one woman editor-in-chief of a major European cardiology journal. And that is a striking figure, right? So if we're thinking through the opportunity to select, deliberately select women, um, you know, maybe there's a need to do that here just to sort of start balancing the scales a little bit more. Uh, and obviously meritocracy plays into this discussion and diversity means multiple things as we've already discussed. But do you think there's an argument for that? Do you think, you know, there should be a discussion among editorial boards about sort of really focusing on balancing things out a bit more? So the simple answer is yes. I saw this paper and I agree. The results are striking. They are even concerning because they show really that female colleagues are uh, totally underrepresented. I found interesting in that study for our listeners that uh, the discrepancy is not only in the composition of editorial boards, but also in the academic positions, which I think uh, it's a logical link, you know, because uh, when you typically have the discrepancy in academia, you see the discrepancy reflected in all the other fields. So this made me think that the change uh, should occur at many stages. And of course, we cannot use uh, as an excuse that we are doing our best for meritocracy. So I totally understand the, the point that we should be sometimes proactive also in um, making a change uh, anyway. I can say that in this paper, they also put statistics from uh, subspecialty journals, including your intervention. They are aggregated. Uh, they refer to 2018. So of course, 2020. I hope this is uh, sometime improved, but uh, I'm sure we can do better, we can do more. My point is really that the excellence belongs to both sexes, and I uh, really uh, applaud uh, the initiative, uh, such as Women as One, but also others that educate the community uh, that uh, this is something we can improve, because sometimes we give for granted that, okay, this is a complaint because uh, someone wants more. No, it's not a problem of career, it's not the problem of uh, agenda, it's a problem, <laughs> a real problem when you see that only 10% of people that should be more recognized are there. So it's uh, obviously a disparity. And uh, the more we speak about this, the better it is, I think. But of course, we have also to take action. No, I agree. Obviously, I agree. And I, I think you're right to note that, you know, 2019 and, and 2020 figures have started to sort of creep up in relation to this topic. And the European Heart Journal in particular, I noticed has, you know, a, sort of a high percentage of women as a, compared to prior years. And I, I think, or at least I believe that has a lot to do with Professor Cassidy and her involvement in, in making sure that that happened. Mm -hmm. So, I want to move into the, the publication submission process because there are issues here as well. There are issues everywhere, but it's really interesting, you know, and I think looking at this from a, an academic perspective, sort of a research-based perspective, you start to come across these manuscripts and these data that really point to some serious problems that I think everyone should be concerned with, as you mentioned, and, and should want to talk about and take action on. So it's pretty well established. I think most people know 
or maybe they don't, that women do not publish as frequently as men. Several articles have pointed to reviewer bias, both on the part of men and women. So this is an issue across the board as the reason for this sort of disparity in publication rates. And similarly, and this is really interesting to me as well, prestige of the author has been associated with higher favorability among reviewers. So if the author is well known, you know, within the academic community, then the reviewers are more likely to look favorably upon those manuscripts. So with men currently holding those more prestigious positions, it seems that that would also disproportionately impact women, right? So women are submitting papers, but you have a more prestigious male author, you know, submitting papers, and perhaps that person's going to be accepted, whereas the woman would not be. I know I've sent you all of this before this conversation, but were you aware of any of this prior to this conversation? And has there been a discussion, I think, among your editorial board about reviewer bias? Does that come up or, or should it come up? Honestly, I have to say no, because to be honest, I know that there is uh, this uh, perception, but I never had this perception uh, since years in your intervention. So the problem is that some papers uh, are more likely to receive a favorable response uh, or maybe favorable comments from the reviewers, uh, depending on the uh, gender of the uh, submitter. Well, my approach to these stories is really to look at data and try to understand whether this is uh, true or not, first of all, because uh, sometimes perception is not necessarily something that corresponds to the truth. I have no data, so I didn't do data mining for uh, that in your intervention. I really don't have this perception uh, when I open the journal, I see that uh, we we invite uh, women to make editorials like we invite men. And we see, uh, by the way, in your intervention, the first author is as a picture in the page. So it's easy really to immediately grasp that men and women are both recognizing the journal. But again, because I have no data, I don't want to claim uh, that we do well or bad. The interesting part is that I know that there is a science that is running in order to address uh, this topic. Uh, and particularly, I know that one uh, colleague editor of an uh, Italian journal, which is the Minerva Cardiangiologica, and the name is Giuseppe Biondi Zocai, is actually uh, running a trial, which is called the Gender NCA, which will be a randomized trial testing the impact uh, of uh, sex bias on a biomedical peer review. So basically what they are doing, if I may, is to randomize uh, uh, papers uh, of course, uh, after informed consent of the authors to uh, a reviewer of the same sex of the first author uh, or to a different sex. And the primary endpoint will be the rate of uh, favorable decisions, accept, minor revision, major revision, de novo. Meaning that uh, if uh, the gender bias exists, uh, probably we will discover that uh, what you are mentioning actually translates into uh, real data. And I think this is important, not really because we want to um, put this in numbers, but because if you can really prove that, that this uh, has a magnitude of effect, uh, then, of course, this becomes the first step to do, okay, now what we can do? Where should we uh, go? How can we get that kind of result? So, of course, I don't want, again, escape from this uh, topic. Uh, I'm in a learning curve, I have to say. And, again, I think the initiative of uh, organizations such as uh, your is very important because they uh, uh, you are really educating people that are not used to think in this way to look at this problem in a more uh, diversified and multifaceted uh, way. Um, and I think the next logical uh, step is to look at uh, studies like that to see whether this is truth, 
how much is true, if uh, any, and then let's see how can we correct. Because of course, if there is a bias of that uh, of that uh, thing, I think it's very important to correct it immediately. Yeah, I would obviously agree. And you know, there are studies in the United States um, that point to this issue of bias and not necessarily in cardiology, but in other areas of medicine, NIH funding, for example. And we know that bias exists and it impacts me. You know, I think about how when I'm reviewing candidates for positions, you know, what's going on in my subconscious, right? And I I don't have control over that. And I'm maybe making bad decisions because I, I don't know any better. And I'm sort of pre-programmed, if you will, to think a certain way. And if that's negatively impacting candidates of, you know, color, if it's negatively impacting candidates, you know, who are women, then we need to correct that. And I think having the data, as you've just explained, emphasizes, you know, the reality of this problem um, and hopefully will lead us to some solutions. And, And that's sort of the next question here, which is, what are the solutions? Mitigating bias is incredibly difficult. And talking about things like bias training, I think that's you know something that comes up a lot as the solution to this problem. But there's very little evidence that bias training actually works. And so I've been intrigued with this idea of double-blinded peer review. So if you're submitting manuscripts, nobody knows the gender of anybody else, who these authors are, who the reviewers are, and you're just looking at the content of the manuscript, you know, perhaps that's something that can help mitigate the bias on all sides. I don't know, I'm sure there are limitations and issues that I'm not aware of with double-blinded review, but have you thought about, you know, kind of instating double-blinded peer review? Do you think that would be a problem or, or is it something you might consider? Well, in terms of uh, logistics, is something that is uh, doable, can be implemented. Uh, there are, of course, uh, some uh, limitations to this approach. Uh, I, I must say that uh, if I look at uh, different journals I have uh, ever submitted in my life, uh, this is requested by very few of them, really a small fraction, meaning that you send uh, your paper without the cover page, uh, that has typically the name and the affiliations, and then, of course, the process is uh, blinded to the reviewers. The good, uh, the pros for that, of course, is uh, to mitigate kind of an issue. I think they started this uh, process uh, not only to address the gender bias, but also to address the tendency to accept uh, uh, papers from uh, authors with high reputation in the academic field and then uh, to reject automatically those for people that are just starting and maybe younger in the career, which I think is also unfair. But at the same time, uh, many reviewers uh, want to know uh, the name of those who submit, uh, not really to make decisions based on the stage of their career or the gender, but because they want to be to understand how much they can trust the reputation of that particular group when they try to make a conclusion based on some methodological aspects, etc. So sometimes you need that information to realize whether what you are reading is something that you can trust or not, which I think is not a problem only in medicine, but also in, in every field of life sometimes that you want to know who is the one you are speaking with. Having said that, if the problem gender bias uh, exists, that would be unacceptable, and uh, I agree we uh, need to find solutions. So one could be that. I think a solution that, of course, no one would like, I think, is to give uh, uh, the review task to people of the same gender of the submitters. So I think uh, that's uh, horrible to say, okay, women review for women and men review for men. So, of course, uh, uh, at least for me, it uh, doesn't make any sense. I think a general solution that takes time is really to educate people more. 
And again, uh, it's a process. And I think we are at the stage of uh, awareness that is much better than years before. There is a long way to uh, to go, uh, for sure, but uh, we need to convince people that uh, this kind of discussions uh, uh, must become uh, obsolete. I think of the past. So the new normal should be that uh, you really uh, look at the contents like we try to do uh, without any kind of uh, bias uh, explicit on or implicit. So I'm talking of education versus uh, a faster and maybe better solution that you are uh, proposing. So I cannot say this is not useful at all. Of course, uh, it's a way to avoid this kind of bias. But again, I think we need to test that, that this is an effective way. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. And I think there are studies to be to be done in this area. Uh, another thing that you know I've been thinking about as far as a, a solution or, or maybe just a, a source of information is taking a look at the data in your submission portal and trying to understand who's submitting manuscripts. And can we take a look at the makeup of that population and try to glean something from that? So what do we learn by looking at the submission portal? Who is submitting? Who's not submitting? Who's getting approved? Who's not getting approved? And so on. And I asked you this ahead of time. You said you'd not done that yet. But is that something that's possible and, and that you might be willing to do as a result of this conversation? Well, let's say, surely it's interesting. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a good point because when you look at what's happening in your journal, basically you are really monitoring the quality of the process. And this is something that I would like to know for sure. Uh, the practicality of it is difficult because it's true that you can extract some data from the system in terms of statistics. But then, of course, you have to attribute uh, the gender to each paper which is something you can do only manually, of course, because this is not a variable that is collected by the system. So it means that for all the papers you want to screen, maybe you can just extract a sample of them. If you are really, uh, if you really want to uh, know this information, then you have to extract the uh, success rate for that paper and look at how many of them uh, uh, comes from women. What is important for me also in this kind of exercise is to realize that uh, this uh, data extraction process should be really in uh, relative metrics rather than in absolute metrics, because uh, here one of the problems is also the denominator, because obviously, if you look at the absolute number of papers with women as a first author, it's small. And this is uh, not necessarily because uh, more uh, papers from women are rejected, but because we receive uh, fewer submissions from uh, women. So this makes me think that uh, we really need to work at all uh, uh, levels of the career. And in the journal, particularly, we need to have more reviewers, because more reviewers uh, who are female will have uh, the possibility to shine with their uh, talent and so we will be able to uh, select more uh, section editors. Then more section editors will become deputy editors, deputy editors will become editor-in-chief. So the real problem is also the basis, which is a little bit narrower than the basis that we have for men. But I'm sure you agree that uh, the real problem uh, starts uh, upstream in the process. And uh, it's not just the problem of the position on top, but also the entry level as many less applicants uh, than men. And this is a general problem as well. I feel like we've converted you now, and <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna go back and hopefully make some some big changes. I remember when you were appointed as editor in chief of your intervention, and I tweeted out my congratulations and and said that I thought you had the potential to really modernize this process. And I still believe that. And I think part of that modernization, if you will, of you know academic publishing 
has to touch on this issue of diversity. And I hope that, you know, our listeners have learned something today. Hopefully these, you know, ideas will will spark others to explore these topics and think about ways that they can develop in this area. And I think this has been a great conversation. So thank you. I know this has been a little out of your comfort zone, but I, it's been a very nice conversation, at least for me. And hopefully people will agree with that. So thank you for your time today. Thank you.